Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za Yeah, good morning. It's wonderful to see everyone on this Lord's Day. Uh, just for the children who have the piece of paper, the word for today is Saul. So Saul, King Saul. And uh, if you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 10. 1 Chronicles chapter 10. We started a new series, uh, the Chronicles of Israel, going through uh, the books of Chronicles. And last week we looked at the first nine chapters, the genealogies, and drew some lessons from those chapters. Today we're not going to do so many chapters. We're just going to do one chapter, chapter 10. And uh, it's about... The, the end of King Saul's reign. So just a brief chapter where the chronicler, so we don't know who, who, who put together First and Second Chronicles, we just call him the chronicler. Uh, we believe that he was a priest because of the emphasis on the priesthood and the temple worship. Uh, so that's about as much as we're, we're fairly certain of. So if you hear the word chronicler, then it's just the author. Uh, we don't know his name. But uh, he has this, this chapter, one chapter, that just deals with King Saul, really showing uh, the end of Saul as king and the end of his lineage, the end of his dynasty, and the replacement, the last line of this chapter that we're going to read, shows us that David is replaced as, uh, replaces Saul as the new king, and the Davidic line is the new line from whom the Messiah will ultimately come. Remember that Jesus Christ is... David's greater son. Uh, he, he comes many centuries later, but he is a descendant of David. And so the chronicler is writing to the Israelites who have returned from Babylon. They were taken into exile by Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian Empire, but God had raised up a deliverer, uh, Cyrus, a Medo-Persian Empire, and they were allowed to go back and to start to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple, but they were very discouraged. And uh, one of the things that had happened is they had lost confidence in the Davidic line. They had lost confidence in their rulers because it was their rulers that had gotten them into this mess in the first place. And so the chronicler has to try and rebuild that confidence in the Davidic line. And here he's showing that Saul is not the legitimate king nor anyone from his line. In fact, his line is wiped out and God had chosen David and his descendants. And so the children of Israel must have confidence in God's plan. And God has chosen David and his descendants. So let's read through this chapter and then, and then uh, see what the Lord has to say to us. So First Chronicles chapter 10, from verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines... 
and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was wounded by the archers. And Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died. Thus Saul died, he and his three sons, and all his house died together. And when all the men of Israel who were in the valley saw that the army had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they stripped him and took his head and his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to their idols and to the people. And they put his armor in the temple of their gods and fastened his head in the temple of Dagon. But when all Jabesh Gilead heard all that the Philistines had done to Saul, All the valiant men arose and took away the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons and brought them to Jabesh. And they buried their bones under the oak in Jabesh and fasted for seven days. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. This is the reading of God's word. Well, the passage divides quite, quite easily, quite neatly into four sections. The first section, verses 1 to 7, Saul's death. Verses 8 and 10, the display of Saul's body. Verses 11 to 12, the retrieval of Saul's body. And then verses 13 to 14, why God killed Saul. So that first section, verses 1 to 7, as we've read it already, we won't go through it again. Uh, It's very straightforward. Uh, Saul and the Israelites are fighting their sort of, their nemesis, the Philistines. Uh, We even use that word in in colloquial English to refer to someone who's a bit barbaric. We say, that person's a Philistine. Uh, That's that's how well known uh, that word has become. That term has become, but you will know who's the most famous Philistine that's ever lived was Goliath. Uh, Goliath was a Philistine. So Israel always had this, this friction, this fight with the Philistines. And even to this day, uh, maybe you don't know this, but um, uh, the nation of Israel is generally called Palestine. And that actually comes from the, the name Philistine. Uh, so it was a pejorative term. It was given to that land to say, well, it's, uh, we're going to call it Palestine. We're not going to acknowledge the, the Jewish people. We're still even going to call it what the Philistines used to call it. Uh, and so even to this day, there's still a remnant of this history. Uh, so here the Philistines and the Israelites are fighting. Saul goes out to fight with his sons. And it is a, a terrible story, a shameful account. They, his sons are... Uh, die on the battlefield. He loses 
three of his sons on the battlefield, and then he is wounded by the archers, and he is afraid of being captured. And so I'm sure you've seen even in, in modern day movies, you know, when, when soldiers are, are afraid of being caught, if they're injured, you know, they'll take a cyanide capsule or something like that because they're afraid of being tortured. And that's what Saul is saying. I don't want these Philistines to, to find me. I don't want them to, to torture me and to abuse me. And so he says to his armor bearer, you put me to death. You kill me so I don't have to go through that humiliation and that pain. And uh, his armor bearer says, no, I, you know, I can't do that. I can't just kill you. I can't kill the king. And so Saul actually takes his own life. He commits suicide. And if you read in Scripture, suicide is foreign to, to Israel. There are certain cultures where suicide is seen as honorable. Isn't that right? Uh, I think of certain Asian cultures. I've seen you know, the Japanese, the kamikaze pilots or... Um, other cultures where something shameful occurs, a person will take the sword and thrust it into themselves. I'm just grateful I was never born into one of those cultures because <laughs> I'd be like, whoa, sorry I messed up, but I'm out of here. Uh, <laughs> um, I wouldn't be taking my own life. And, uh, but it, there has been an idea that taking your own life is an honorable thing. It sort of crept in. It's a brave thing. People often say that. Have you heard that? I'm not brave enough to take my own life. Well, the Bible says something completely opposite. It's not brave to take your own life. It's not honorable to take your own life. Uh, Saul is behaving shamefully here. It is sin to take your own life. Uh, But Saul has drifted so far from the Lord uh, that this is the end of his life. A shameful end to his life. Reminds us of Judas, doesn't it? Uh, Judas also went and took his own life, committed suicide. And so Saul dies a shameful, horrible death. His sons die as well. And I want you to note, if, you, if you're familiar with the story of David and Saul and his family, I'm sure you, you know that Jonathan, Saul's son, was a, was a believer. He was a child of God, a, a godly man. In fact, he would have made a wonderful king. Uh, but he knew that kingship was not for him. It was actually... For David, and he sub- he submitted to that. Can you imagine knowing that your family is God has said your the, the 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 kingship, the monarchy will be taken away from you and given to your best friend? Uh, would you be jealous of them? Would you try and uh, meddle with those plans? How would you how would you react? Uh, just just in my own life, speaking to others, seen in in my own children's lives, it's hard to rejoice. For others, isn't it, often? Especially those very close to you. You think, you know, why did they get the promotion and I didn't get the promotion? Uh, why did they get that nice thing? Why did they get that Christmas present and I got socks? Uh, why did... <laughs> and yet Scripture calls us to rejoice with those who rejoice. To actually delight in, in things going better for others. Uh, I think that's a remarkable thing. Only the, the Holy Spirit can work that in us. And, but we're to fight for it. And Jonathan was like that. He, didn't, he, he had no guile, no bitterness. He didn't turn from David. In fact, uh, I've said this before. It's one of the most wonderful passages in Scripture. When David was downcast, Jonathan came and the Scripture said he encouraged him in the Lord. And that's the definition of a friend. Uh, someone who encourages you in the Lord. And so Jonathan was 
a true believer, a godly man, and yet he also dies here. Not for his own sins, but because of the sins of his father. Because of Saul's rebellion, because of Saul's disobedience, because of Saul's not seeking the Lord, as we'll see. Saul and his family are wiped out. And so I want to say something here, some application, that the consequences of the wicked often affect the righteous. Even in the church, and this hopefully is a deterrent, do you realize that your sin does have an effect upon others? There's there's no such thing as sort of a victimless crime. Uh, You know, as long as I'm not hurting anyone, your sin affects others. Uh, And God may judge the wicked in the world, in the church, and the righteous suffer along with that. Remember, Daniel is also taken into exile. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were righteous, godly young men, are also taken into exile. And so our sins affect others. And then also the sins of others, those who reject Christ, the consequences of their sins very often affect God's people as well. And so don't be surprised at that. Jonathan, we will see him in glory. He's okay. Uh, but his life was cut short because of the sin of his, his father. And so this whole passage is very brief. Not a lot of time is spent on Saul. It's a transition period. We've had the chronology. But we're going to be set up now for David. But this passage is written in a very negative way. The word death occurs five times. It's a morbid passage. It's a, it's a, it's a shameful passage. The, the mention of suicide and the Philistines conquering and taking the land and entering into the houses. Remember it says that all of Israel, they fled. The, the land that God had promised them is now taken away from them. And their houses are lost. So that's the first, first section. The second section is the display of Saul's body. And so the, the next day the Philistines are out there and they're going through the bodies and they find Saul. They find his body and what do they do? They mistreat it. They decapitate it. Uh, they strip his body naked. They take his body through the, the land. They send messengers throughout the whole land, telling everyone the good news. The king of Israel has been killed. We've humiliated him. Uh, they, they take his armor and they, they fasten his head to the, the temple to their god Dagon. It's grotesque. Uh, it's shameful. Uh, but it reminds us of an earlier account, which is not found in Chronicles, but is in, in Samuel, of one of the Philistines who had their head cut off, Goliath. Remember that story of David and Goliath? Uh, we often forget that later on, remember, David took Saul, uh, Goliath's own sword and cut off Goliath's head. It was a reminder of that first promise right in the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve had sinned. And all seem to be lost. Hopelessness, curses. And yet in the midst of that, there's a promise. There's going to be one who comes who will crush the head of the serpent. There's going to be one who makes things right. And so you find all the way through Scripture these various accounts of, of victory where people's heads are cut off or heads are crushed. And that's a reminder of Christ who is to come. And that's the story of David and Goliath. David is the one, a picture of Christ, who defeats our enemy, who defeats Satan, who defeats death, who defeats sin. 
And here things are, are reversed in that sense. The king of Israel is treated shamefully. He is taken and humiliated. His head is cut off because he had rejected God. And notice that that they take his head, they put it at their temple to their false god, Dagon. They are rejoicing. They are pagans. They don't worship the true and living God. And yet they are full of joy and they are rejoicing at this great victory. When those who claim the name of Christ don't live in a Christ-like way, do you know that it brings joy to unbelievers? The name of Christ is mocked. That's what's going on here. Can you imagine how they must have mocked the God of Israel? Blasphemed his name. Our God, Dagon, is the true and living God. Our God is the real God. We have conquered these Israelites. We have destroyed their king. We've cut his head off. We've stripped him naked. We've humiliated him. How great is our God? You see this often, don't you? You see uh, these pastors who bear the name of Christ and they're supposed to be proclaiming Christ and then their evil and their sin is exposed. And what does it do to... what 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 do unbelievers say? Hypocrites. Christianity is a load of nonsense. It's a lie. See how they behave. See how they live. Maybe it's in in the workplace. Maybe it's in your office. Maybe it's at school. How are you living? Peter says this. He says, talks about the way those who claim the name of Christ live. And he says in 2 Peter chapter 2, Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. What is your testimony in the workplace? What is your testimony at school at varsity? Are you a person who's living like the devil, but then you're evangelizing? <laughs> you know what you're doing? You know, what, you know what, how people see you? You're a hypocrite. Because of you, they blaspheme the name of Christ. Why must they follow Christ? You're a liar. You're a deceiver. And that's what Saul has done. He has brought, he has brought shame on the people of God and the name of God. What I find remarkable is that the Lord allows that, isn't he? God will allow his name to be mocked rather than to let sin continue in his people. See that? God will expose sin and he will allow people to blaspheme his name. It's remarkable. He will allow people to live as hypocrites. And unbelievers to say, well, you see, Christianity is a load of nonsense. He will do that rather than let sin continue amongst his, his people. And that's what he does with, with Saul. He exposes Saul and removes Saul, even, even knowing that his own name is going to be blasphemed. People are going to mock his name. People are going to belittle his name and belittle his people. But he does that. But the warning to us is not, not to behave like that. Now, we will sin. God's people will sin. We're not perfect. If you sinned in the workplace, if you sinned at school or in varsity, uh, whatever sphere it is, repent of it. Go to those, those unsaved colleagues. Say, please forgive me. I have not behaved as a Christian should. Humble yourself. So this is the way a true Christian lives. 
When you look at David and Saul, both of them sinned greatly, didn't they? But there was a difference. David had it, was quick to repent, wasn't he? When his sin was confronted, he was broken over his sin. He repented. We have these beautiful psalms of penitence. And then briefly, the, the men of Jabesh Gilead go and they retrieve Saul's body. They go and fetch it. And uh, uh, they do an honorable thing. But even the whole account is, is shameful. They bury, they bury him and they fast for seven days. And it's just a little snippet to say, this is what, what Saul's reign brought to the nation of Israel. It brought sadness and shame and sorrow. Uh, it, was not a, it was not a glorious reign. Now why did God do this? And, and this brings us to the last two verses. Why, why did God kill Saul? And it is God, as we saw last week with Ur. The Lord put him to death. If you see right at the end of this, the chapter. Therefore the Lord put him to death. Again, the absolute sovereignty of the Lord. It is the Lord who gives life and the Lord who takes it away. The Lord who is in control, he, he puts Saul to death. Yes, he used secondary means uh, to kill the family, he used the Philistines, he even used Saul himself. But God is sovereign over all of these things. Now why? Why did Saul die? Why did God kill Saul? And there are three reasons given here. So let me read the verses. They're just, just the two verses. Verse 13. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord. And also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. So three reasons are given why God put Saul to death. Why the Lord judged him and ended his dynasty. First of all, unfaithfulness. Secondly, he consulted a medium. And thirdly, he did not seek the Lord. So we're going to spend a bit of time on, on each of these and seek to, to learn the lessons. So first of all, unfaithfulness. As we saw last week uh, in the genealogy, unfaithfulness was, is a major theme in, in the Chronicles. It is the reason why the nation of Israel went into, into exile. Unfaithfulness, disloyalty. And so the challenge to us again is, are we faithful to the Lord? Now he was unfaithful in many ways, but uh, one of the primary ways that he did not obey God's command was that he was told to destroy the Amalekites. So the Amalekites were uh, another nation. And uh, this is what Samuel says to, to Saul in 1 Samuel 28. Verse 17, the Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. In 1 Samuel 15, Saul is told to attack the Amalekites and to wipe them out. Completely. Total annihilation of everything that they have and all their possessions, all their animals. Uh, and this is not just uh, you know, arbitrary or something like that. The Amalekites had attacked the children of Israel when they had left Egypt and were on their way to the promised land. 
while they were still weak, they didn't have an army, they, they, just, they were slaves who had just now been delivered from Egypt, they were in the wilderness, they were weak, they were this, you know, this, this bunch of guys who had never been trained to fight. Uh, and on their way to the promised land, the Amalekites attacked them and tried to stop them from reaching the promised land. And now, many years later, the Lord says, I haven't forgotten what the Amalekites did. I want you, Saul, to go back and, and judge them. I, I want my wrath to fall upon them and I'm going to use you and the Israelite army to be my means of bringing judgment upon the Amalekites. And so the Lord was very clear through Samuel the prophet. Nothing was to be spared. As we saw last week with, uh, with Achan and Jericho, nothing was to be spared. But Saul didn't listen. 1 Samuel 15 verse 9 says this, But Saul and the people spared Agag, that's the king, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. But all that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The Lord was very clear, everything must be destroyed. You cannot take anything. But Saul and the people said, no, what we'll do is we'll keep the best. I mean, it sounds reasonable, doesn't it? Like, well, we'll keep, we'll keep what's good. Look, there's some nice animals here. God loves animals. Let's keep the, you know, let's keep these ones. These ones are, are a bit bigger than the others. We'll keep these ones. There's some nice things here. There's some clever people here. Let's keep these things. They didn't obey the Lord. The Lord was clear. And Samuel comes to Saul later on and said to him, Wait, wait. So he comes to Saul, and this is how Saul responds. So I'm just telling you the story now. We'll draw out some implications for us today. So Samuel the prophet comes to Saul. Saul, this is after the battle, and this is how Saul greets him. Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. So the first thing he says to the prophet is, Bless the Lord. I've done everything the Lord asked me to do. Now that's a lie. But that's how he responds. And then Samuel says, it's one of the classic verses in the Bible, I think. Uh, what then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Well, how come I'm hearing all these animal noises if you've obeyed fully what the Lord said? And then Saul says this. They, the people, have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Okay. Uh, blame shifting. Does that remind you of someone? Okay. Don't think you are my husband and my wife. Uh, Adam and Eve, isn't that right? Right from the beginning. The human condition. Blame shifting. He's the king. But now he says the people. The people did it. And then he tries to you know, put a nice religious spin on, on it. So we can sacrifice them to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. Okay. Uh, and, he, and he carries on talking. I just, I just like that because sometimes in counseling it's like, just stop. Okay. <laughs> You're talking nonsense here. Uh, You're not obeying what God says. The Lord was clear. There was no vagueness. The Lord said, Saul, this is what you need to do. 
but he doesn't obey God. Now, how does that apply to us? Uh, as I said to you last time, how do we take these Old Testament accounts? Very important, because remember we saw, Paul says, it's all written for our example. We need to learn the lessons from these stories. What lessons can I learn? We're not being called to go and invade uh, nations or tribes and to annihilate them or anything like that. Uh, what, how, do, how does it apply to us? Well, when we come to the New Testament, we are Paul, Paul's epistles and the New Testament is riddled with warfare language. Of being a soldier, of swords, of armor, fighting, putting to death. The language is still there, but what do we fight now? We fight sin. We fight wrong thinking. And so you can see it like this. In all of our hearts and our minds, there are little Amalekites running around. Okay? I'm stealing this imagery from John Bunyan's The Holy War. You can go and read that. It's a, it's a fantastic allegory. Um, that's what's going on. There, within you and me, there are little Pharisees, there are little Judases, there are little Amalekites running around, which we call sins. That are trying to turn our heart and our minds against the things of God. And God comes to us every Sunday, every time we hear the word, every time we read scripture, every day the Holy Spirit is convicting us. You need to put them to death. You need to be ruthless. Show them no mercy. God is crystal clear. He doesn't say, well, just the really bad sins, you know, those ones that nobody likes in the culture. Those are the big ones you need to deal with. But those other ones that are okay in the culture, that's fine. You can keep those ones. Or those ones you like, that's okay. But we do that. We say, well, these ones, yeah, that's fine. That one I can see is, is not a good one. I'll, I'll kill them. But we have these other sins, what the Puritans call darling sins, that we hold on to. And we refuse to put them to death. We justify them. Yeah, but you don't know how... I hold on to this bitterness because you don't know how other people have treated me. I hold on to this pride because, you know, if I don't, people will walk all over me. You know, lust is not a bad thing. You know, it's, you guys need to get over that. It's the 21st century. Whatever it is, we hold on to it as our pet sins, our darling sins. And we refuse to take steps. And we are to put them to death. To show them no mercy. One of the reasons we don't do that is because we don't think long term. We don't realize how, how terrible the effects of sin are. And how horrific they are. We don't look at the cross and see, Lord, this is what you did for me. How can I hold on to these sins? How can I play with them and toy with them? Keep them safe. Well, Samuel says to Saul, bring Agag out here. And it's another one of the great passages in Scripture. And the King James says, the king is brought out and the king says to Samuel, he says, look, so everything's over now, the battle's over, it's a time of peace. And the King James says, as Samuel picked up a sword and hew him to pieces. Okay? It's a gruesome picture. But that's how you and I need to treat our sin. Now, maybe you're sitting and you say, well, that's quite melodramatic. Like, I've heard people say things like, you know, Christianity is, is so nuts. You know, like, Adam took, I mean, they took a bite of a fruit. 
You know, now everyone's going to burn in hell forever. You know, how ridiculous is Christianity? Yeah, maybe you're sitting there thinking that. Then you don't know God. You don't know how glorious and holy he is and majestic he is. That when he says, you shall not eat the fruit of this tree, there are no questions asked. It's absolute. You don't eat the fruit of that tree. You obey God. When he says, kill all the Amalekites, you obey God. When God says, kill all the sins in your life, wherever you find them, no matter how painful, that Jesus even comes along and says, it's like, if you have to cut off your hand and pluck out your eye, do that instead. But we say, it's not a, such a big deal. I'm not as bad as that guy down the road or the, my work colleague. Well, then you don't have a vision of God yet. You don't understand Calvary yet. You haven't really seen what Christ accomplished. It's those little sins, so-called little sins, that are still worthy of damnation. And so my, my challenge, my plea to you is learn from Saul. He was unfaithful to the Lord and he lost everything. He didn't obey God in fighting the way he was supposed to. Fight your sin every time you find it. Be ruthless with it. Maybe you find in your heart, but I I don't yet hate this sin as I should. Well, seek the Lord to hate it more. And even start to take the steps. Don't say, well, I'll fight it when I hate it. Start to take the steps now because God has already said Put it to death. And it's interesting when you go and read uh, earlier, not in Chronicles and Samuel and Kings, when, when they announce the death of Saul and his sons to David, it's actually an Amalekite who brings the news. You see, because he didn't wipe out all the Amalekites. It's an Amalekite who brings the news with joy that... Saul is dead. And you know what David does to that Amalekite? Puts him to death. So see your sins. They're, they're there to kill you. They have no, they're not nice. They're not good for you. They hate you. Paul personifies sin. I'm personifying sin. That's the first reason. The second reason is that he consulted a medium for guidance. A medium was someone who, who, who consulted with, with demons. And so the Bible is very clear. God was crystal clear on this. Had nothing to do with that. That's what, what the pagan nations would do. In fact, you're to put to death anyone who, who's involved in that. Uh, and so just straight off, upfront application, very straightforward, one-to-one application. Anyone who is... is uh, Consulting with demons and the demonic realm and the spiritual realm uh, to give advice, whether it's fortune tellers, uh, sangomas, uh, tarot cards, star signs, shamans, gurus, whatever it is, the child of God is to have nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with that. That's just up front. Okay? Uh, you, you're not like what well, it's just a, it's a little bit of a joke I just want to go see the fortune teller I want to have my palm read uh, I just want to you know see how these things work or something like that it's just a bit of fun God absolutely hates it because it is it's demonic 
We'll see how we are supposed to respond. Now, does that mean that, that we're not allowed to, to learn anything from the world? Does it mean, you know, well, you know, all we're to do, the only place we find guidance is the Scriptures? No, I don't believe that. Uh, we're, we're, to, we're to learn wherever there is goodness and truth and beauty. We can learn from those things. Uh, we can use the things that God has given us. We are to use those things. I remember Proverbs, proverbial wisdom through observation. We can learn from the insights of others, even unbelievers. As they, as they look at patterns in people's lives and they see consequences in people's lives, yes, we can learn from, from those things. Uh, that's not, uh, that's not uh, demonic. We're not standing here saying you cannot read any other books. You can't uh, you know, learn from any other person. That's not what we see in Scripture. That's not how it operates. But we are to be very, very careful. What is the worldview that has been perpetrated? What is the worldview that has been pushed in movies, in literature, in magazines, in articles? What is the worldview? Is it fundamentally against God? Is it coming with a different definition of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, of marriage, of gender? of being a father, of being a husband, of being a wife, being a child. What is the world we... So we are to be discerning in, in everything that we, we look at. And then we are not to you know, look within to find the answers. The deification of the self. That within ourselves we have all the answers. That we are sufficient in and of our, ourselves. Christianity says, no, we are not. We are not independent. We are dependent. Dependent upon the Lord. Growth in holiness means you realize more and more how dependent you are upon the Lord. How much you need Him. It's not the same as as raising children. So uh, the idea with raising children is that I don't want my children to be 30 and living in my basement. (laughs) I don't want them to become more dependent on me. The idea with raising children is that they do become independent. That they find jobs, Lord willing. That they, uh, they get an income. They, they, uh, if the Lord calls them to marriage, they get married. They find a home. That they become less and less dependent on their parents. That's, that's, that's healthy raising of children. But when it comes to Christianity, it's not like that. True maturity is growing in more and more and more dependence upon God. There's that song, it says that, I need thee. Every moment of the day, I need thee. That's why if if you've been serving the Lord for any period of time, you probably feel like a worse Christian than you did at the beginning. Why is that? It's not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. You might think, I'm getting worse and worse. That's what's happening. I'm a worse Christian. Uh, Well, if you are actually growing in holiness and walking with the Lord, what's happening is you're realizing how much you actually need the Lord and how much sin there is, indwelling sin there still is. And so true maturity is growing in, in dependence upon the Lord. 
Not dependence upon self, not dependence on your own wisdom and your own uh, brilliance or insights or those kind of things, but dependence on, on God's word and on the Lord himself. And this leads us to the third point. They go together. So he went to a medium to find out what is going to happen. He wanted to know the future, and that's what people want to know. We all want to know that, don't we? It would be nice to know what's going to, you know, what lottery numbers to pick. Uh, It's always funny, you know, if you watch on YouTube and every now and then there's like this advert for a fortune teller or something like that. And I'm always thinking, but if you're any good, why are you wasting your time making money like this? Why aren't you at the horse races betting, like, you know, or, or the lottery numbers? Like, you can't be that good if you, you know... If you have to make money doing this. Okay. Uh, anyway. Um, he was looking to find out what's going to happen. Wanted to know the future. Uh, now, what is that? That's a fundamental lack of trust in the Lord. You don't... God has not told you what will happen tomorrow. Isn't that right? Uh, it, it isn't in Scripture. It isn't in Scripture that you will get married. There's no promise that says that. There's no promise that says who you'll get married to, if you'll get married, what job you'll get. And none of those things, you won't find that in the Bible. It's not given. It's not given how long you're going to live for, how you're going to die. None of those things are told to us. But there is, of course, we want to know those things, and that's why these, these, these quacks flourish, uh, because people go to them, because they hope for some sort of knowledge of the future. But God calls us to trust Him. That He says, all your days are numbered, all your steps are numbered, I'm in absolute control, you can trust me, I love you, how do, I, how do you know that He loves us? Well, look to Calvary, He sent His own Son to die for us. I will keep you all the days of your life. My grace is sufficient every single day. I'm not going to give you grace for tomorrow, I will give you grace for today. Isn't that right? He gives it today. If I'm counseling people, people often say things like this. Um, yeah, but you don't know, I can't. I can't do this. I can't do it. So then I take them to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says, uh, no tempt- all temptation is common to man and God will always make a way of escape. So nobody can say, I'm, I, you don't understand, this temptation is too big for me. The scripture says, no. God will always make a way of escape. Whatever sin you're facing, whatever temptation you're facing, God's grace is greater than it. He will make a way of escape. No Christian can say that. God's grace is sufficient. Every single day, He will keep you. So what are we called to do? What is the third reason that the Lord took the life of Saul? Is that he did not seek the Lord. He did not seek the Lord. He sought counsel elsewhere. He he, he put his confidence elsewhere. He didn't have faith in the Lord. He did not seek the Lord. And again, this is a critical theme for the chronicler. It appears over and over again. Those that seek the Lord. Now, seek the Lord is not just something... Um, you know, when it's difficult, you seek the Lord. The, the, the phrase, seek the Lord, 
uh, sort of characterized one's whole disposition, one's whole life. How do you live your life? It is the bent of your life that you seek the Lord, that you want to know Him, that you want to obey Him. Your life is oriented towards God. You seek to please Him in every situation. There's not an area of your life where, where God is not involved. You're not just a Christian on Sunday uh, and thinking about things of the Lord on Sunday, but then on Monday, work has no relation to, to, to your Christianity. Your relationships have no relation to, to Christ. No, the one who seeks the Lord, everything is oriented around the Lord. Where you work, what type of work you do, how you do your work, who your friends are, all of those things are orbiting your relationship with the Lord. They're all in relation to serving the Lord. You seek the Lord in every sphere of life. How to use your abilities, your finances, your resources, your gifts, your possessions. All of those things are to do with the kingdom of God. And there, throughout Chronicles, those who seek the Lord find success, peace, and life. Listen to this in Second Chronicles 15. Uh, the Lord comes upon a man and he says this, The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. To seek the Lord in every area of life. And it's not to say, well, that means you must read the Bible three hours a day or anything. The Bible doesn't give those things. It's the whole disposition of your life. It's not, well, from, from six to seven, I seek the Lord. No, it's, it's everything. That it becomes reflexive. In, in, if you're going to move, if you're going to buy something, if you're going to do something, if... Uh, Everything is, becomes about seeking the Lord. Remember what the Lord Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Saul did not seek the Lord. And so the Lord put him to death. And he turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Now, just to encourage you, I love the way the Bible does this. You know, this, this, the story of Saul is a depressing story. Uh, the man had a lot of potential. He was obviously a gifted man. You can go and read more about him. He was a strong man. He, was, he had a presence when he walked in a room. He was head and shoulders taller than everyone else. Um, it seems that there was some sort of humility at the beginning of his life, which, which became sort of self-pity. But he didn't think much of himself uh, in the beginning. And yet it's a nightmare, his life. It becomes a nightmare. He does not obey God. He does not trust God. You see that he's afraid. He has a fear of man. Uh, he, he seeks help in the wrong places. And the end is terrible. Uh, he proves in the end to not be a true child of God. There's consequences for Israel, consequences for his family. And so maybe you're sitting there saying, but I, I haven't sought the Lord properly. I, 
I have fear of man. I, uh, I, I've sinned. Does that mean my end is the same as the Saul? You know, is there any hope? Well, when you come to the New Testament, we find another Saul, don't we? You know that he's from the same tribe as this Saul. Okay? From the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, both of them tried to kill their enemies. Saul tried to kill Christians. In fact, I think he did kill Christians. Uh, I mean, you can't get worse than that, is there? I mean, I don't know what else is worse than that. Killing Christians. Okay? That's what he did. He went around throwing them in jail and killing them. And he's named after this Saul. I don't know why his parents called him after. I, would, you know, I wouldn't call my child after this Saul. But he's named after that Saul. Some people think, oh, his, his name was changed when he became a Christian. It wasn't changed. Paul was just the Greek version of his name. He was still Saul. That was his Hebrew name, Saul, from the tribe of Benjamin. And so maybe you, you've blown it as well. You've lived like Saul. But you know that New Testament Saul became the greatest apostle who ever lived. Okay. And so in, in Christ, this is not the end of the story. So I don't want you to sit there and think, well, I've blown it and, and I've gone too far. Maybe you've even sought mediums and sangomas and fortune tellers and you've entered into that realm. No, there's forgiveness, there's grace if you will repent. We have a Saul, a murderer of Christians, who repented and became probably the greatest Christian who has ever lived, uh, who continues to influence the world in the most incredible ways. And then, as the chronicler is trying to encourage them to not give up confidence in the line of David. As I said to you at the beginning, it's because the line of David leads to Christ. It leads to the Messiah. Let me encourage you, maybe as you sit there, you're battling with trust in the Lord and confidence in the Lord. You've come to the Lord and you thought, well, everything will be okay. And it, maybe your life's got harder. That's normally what happens, actually. <laughs> you become a Christian and it becomes harder. Uh, that's why we, you won't hear us promise you a better life and an easier life. Because the Bible never promises that. Um, if you want to hear that, if you have an itching ear, there's lots of places that will tell you that message. Let me just tell you, it's a lie, though. You won't find it in the Bible. The truth is... If you're going to follow Christ, you're not greater than the master. And they put the master to death and they rejected the master. So that the servant's life is also going to be difficult. But maybe it's a shock and it, it always is. You know, we often, um, you know, Peter says, count it all joy. Uh, and uh, no, sorry, James says that. And then Peter says, don't think it's strange. <laughs> As though some strange thing has happened to you when you're in temptations and trials and tribulations, but it's always interesting that every time they happen, we think it's strange. And that's why Peter has to say, don't think it's strange, because it's going to happen. And so maybe you're battling with trust in the Lord. You say, Lord, I, I, where are you? What's going on? I thought this was going, to, was going to work this way. I thought it was going to happen this way. I've been praying and you haven't answered. Well, let me say again to you, don't lose hope in the Messiah. Don't lose hope in the Davidic line. Don't lose hope in Christ. 
We don't have everything fully here yet now. That's why there's still sickness and death and trials and tribulations. But God never lied to us. The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. This Messiah did conquer, did cut off the head of our enemy. Has has conquered the serpent at Calvary. In our devotions, uh, I always try and, and point uh, point our family to to the gospel in in the devotions, and so we, we were talking about this Genesis three passage about the serpent crusher. Now, when you go and read it, it says that he will crush the head of the serpent, but his heel will be bruised, okay. indicating that it's going to hurt him as well. It's not going to be a painless victory. It's going to be painful. And then Lisbon said, does that remind us of the nails going through his feet? I was like, sure. Maybe. I don't know. But even if it does or doesn't, it, it, it reminded her. And it's a reminder of the cross. At such cost, at such suffering to bring a victory to us. He will see it through to the end. When that time will come, where every tear will be wiped away. Don't lose confidence in in the line of David. Don't lose confidence in the true, ultimate King David, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will keep his promises. He will keep you to the, to the end. And as we go through Chronicles, we'll see now what are we to be about. As we trust in David's line, as we trust in the Messiah, we are to be about building the kingdom of God. Amen.